Hello, we are so glad you joined us for the fourth episode of China Uncovered. I'm your host, Olivia Enos. As our loyal listeners know, China Uncovered is part of the Heritage Foundation's China Transparency Project, which is a broader effort to press for transparency from the Chinese Communist Party, or the CCP. If you've joined us before, you know that our listeners have the opportunity to glean insight from experts working on a wide range of issues related to China, whether that's China's economy, human rights violations, or security concerns. Um, And the common denominator of all of that work is that it's data-driven. One of the things that's so great about this project is that it highlights work of people all across the globe that irrefutably documents the CCP's activities and practices even those activities that the Chinese government seeks to conceal. For this episode, we're doing a deep dive on Chinese domestic politics. We'll be speaking with an expert on the CCP's elite, Victor Shi, from the School of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego. Before we turn it over to him, I want to introduce my co-host for today's episode, Heritage Foundation Visiting Fellow Michael Cunningham, to provide background, context, and input on the state of Chinese politics. Michael spent several years living and working in China. That time really afforded him great insight into China's political landscape, and I know I, for one, am very excited to learn from him. In addition to his work at Heritage, Michael also advises private sector businesses on political risks in China and Northeast Asia. So glad you could join us today, Michael. We are really counting on you to kind of tell us all that we need to know about the CCP's leadership. And can you provide just a brief overview of how the CCP leadership is structured and also explain to our listeners why we should care about China's elites? Sure, I'm happy to. As many of our listeners know, China has both a government bureaucracy with a president and premier, uh, ministries, ministers, uh, and a party bureaucracy, which is led by the general secretary. And it's the, the party that really calls the shots. So Xi Jinping is both China's president and also the CCP's general secretary. And it's that role as general secretary uh, that makes him China's paramount leader. Mm-hmm. So uh, government bureaucracies, of course, are important, but they mostly just implement uh, the instructions that are, uh, that are given by the party leadership. And so the, the CCP, it's, you know, it has a, a pretty complex uh, structure where it's, uh, it's built by a bureaucracy. I mean, it's, its top leaders are the CCP Central Committee. It's a group of a couple hundred of the most uh, senior party leaders. They, con- they convene at party congresses once every five years and usually once or more a year at, at what are called plenary sessions. So the sixth plenary session or sixth plenum of the current 19th Central Committee uh, is occurring on uh, November 8th through 11th. And the 20th Party Congress is going to happen next year, uh, probably sometime in the fall of uh, 2022. So all of this is uh, what we're discussing is extremely relevant now. Uh, The Central Committee is nominally... uh, you know, the highest ranking body in the party. Uh, They formally vote on proposals presented uh, when they meet, but most of the power actually belongs to the top 25 members of that committee who are called the Politburo and the most senior Politburo members. Uh, Currently, there are seven and they're called the Standing Committee. So in practice, much of what the Central Committee does is really a formality, but it's it's still super important. Uh, These are the most senior leaders of the CCP. Many of them lead key provinces. Uh, So 
um, they they still have quite a bit of of uh, influence at the provincial and local levels. Um, uh, most importantly, when Politburo members retire because of age, uh, they are then replaced by their younger colleagues that come up from the Central Committee. So the Central Committee actually is, is a, a lot of the data that Victor, that we're going to ask Victor about it is about the Central Committee. Mm-hmm. And, and you can actually tell a lot of stories. Uh, you can see a lot of narratives about the future of the party. Um, and the future of, of Xi's leadership and of, of the, the CCP's leadership uh, through uh, a lot of this, this data that's, that's available and that, that um, Victor and the UC San Diego people have, have uh, pulled together on the Central Committee members. So um, if Xi stays in power for a third term as expected and manages to stack the Politburo and Standing Committee with his factional allies, um, then, you know, as we know, there won't be a lot of uh, checks on his power during his third term. So the question then is, can he do the same with the Central Committee? Um, And what will that mean uh, longer term? So um, this is, I guess, sort of um, uh, in a nutshell, what uh, the the Central Committee uh, is that we're about to be talking about. That's really awesome, Michael. I feel like... um as for many people, especially people who live in democracies or republics, the Chinese system can seem really opaque. And I think you gave us a lot to noodle on and really good background and context to help us set the stage. So it's now my pleasure to bring in our guest, um, Dr. Victor Shi from the University of California, San Diego, or UCSD. Um, Dr. Shi is a associate professor of political economy and the Ho Mu Lam Chair in China and Pacific Relations at UCSD. He's an expert on the politics of Chinese banking policies, fiscal policies, and exchange rate, as well as, of course, elite politics in China. So Dr. Shi also manages the CCP elite portal for UCSD's China Data Lab, which is what we're going to be focusing on today. Um, Dr. Shi, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, So to kick things off, can you share a little bit more about UCSD's China Data Lab more broadly? Uh, Yeah, sure. So, you know, as you know, uh, the China studies here at UCSD was really uh, built up by an earlier generation of, you know, very well-known, very established uh, China scholars, uh, especially Susan Shirk, who served uh, as the Assistant Secretary of State uh, under Bill Clinton. Also, uh, Barry Naughton, we call him the godfather of, you know, analysis of China's economy. Um, he continues to be uh, very active uh, in writing new things about industrial policies, etc., also, timing Jung, you know, from a slightly younger uh, age cohort. And what Susan was able to do was to raise uh, a substantial amount of money uh, from various sources. Um, actually, a lot of the, the original funding came from the local San Diego community. Uh, she cultivated uh, people over the years, uh, and they were happy to donate to China Studies at UCSD. So one of the things we really uh, all agree on, all the China people uh, agree on at UCSD, is that we need to use data uh, to study China, especially in an age where so much data is available and the tools, the analytical tools to use to study this data 
increasingly is gaining currency in social sciences. Um, around the same time that she raised the money, we were very fortunate to have uh, Molly Roberts uh, to join us uh, from Harvard University. Uh, as you know, Molly is a pioneer uh, in using um, machine learning tools to analyze text. Uh, and this, of course, is very useful for the study of China because um, the Chinese government generates tons and tons of text. And now with the rise of social media, there's you know tons of text being generated by users. So Molly is the head uh, of the China Data Lab. But uh, under this umbrella of the China Data Lab, of course, there are a lot of different projects that um, many of us are working on. Uh, so I, you know, of course, as you mentioned, a lead the lead Chinese political elite portal. Um, there are other um, scholars like my colleague Wei Yishi, who leads a project on uh, text analysis of Chinese regulation. Molly is, you know, of course, doing a million different things at the same time, including more works on social media, uh, but also more recently with uh, Jia Ruixue, my, my other colleague in economics, who's uh, looking at uh, scientific collaboration between the U.S. and China. And the common thing that unites all of us, of course, is that uh, we are using uh, relatively novel. I mean, in my case, not so novel anymore because I started collecting this data um, sort of almost 20 years ago, but novel data to try to analyze different aspects of China. That's so great. Thank you for giving us that broader overview. And for interested listeners, we will be sure to link to UCSD's China Data Lab in the show notes so you can check it out and do a deep dive for yourself. I'm really grateful, Victor, that you highlighted some of the broader work um, of the China Data Lab. Actually, uh, in preparation for this episode, I had the chance to take a look at the Data Lab, um, and I have to say that it's really impressive. Um, I know, Victor, that you're going to primarily share with our listeners about your work on the CCP Elite Portal, but I also just wanted to flag for our listeners the series of opinion polls conducted for the China from the Ground Up section of the China Data Lab. Um, China from the ground up included uh, public opinion polls from the Chinese people on just a really wide range of subjects, anything from public satisfaction to views on the Hong Kong protests um, to the Chinese people's thoughts about the pandemic. And I feel like so often we hear from the CCP's elites and we just hear substantially less um, from the Chinese people. So it was so great to see data-driven efforts to make the voices um, and the opinions of the Chinese people known and heard. Um, so I'm definitely looking forward to following that portion of the China lab. Um, and perhaps some of our listeners will find it really interesting as well. But now to the topic at hand. Um, for this episode, we are zeroing in on your fascinating work for the CCP Elite Portal. Um, Victor, can you share with us the broad overview of the project, what it tracks, and um, what methodologies you've used for this project? So uh, as I mentioned briefly, you know, I started uh, collecting elite biographical data uh, 20 years ago when I was doing my dissertation. Um, and of course, the dissertation eventually turned into my book called Factions and Finance in China. Uh, in the book, I argue that uh, provincial leaders who belong to a certain type of factions, i.e. the factions of party generalists, they tend to lobby more for uh, monetary stimulus, uh, whereas uh, kind of officials who come from the central bureaucracies, they tend to lobby, uh, well, they tend to obey the central government's uh, decree ordering them to restrain their monetary policy. 
Um, so in order to rigorously analyze that problem, I really had to track down the factional affiliation of uh, various provincial governors and party secretaries. So then I started, you know, collecting data. And at that time, uh, most people who studied elite politics did it in a purely qualitative uh, manner, right? So they just looked at someone's biographical history. Um, based on that, you know, they would write about, it's like, well, this person probably uh, belonged to the faction of so-and-so, you know, Deng Xiaoping, Yang Shangkun, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I basically took those insights and say, well, you know, that makes a lot of sense. You know, if two people work together uh, in the same unit, uh, fought together in the same guerrilla base, they probably had some kind of factional affiliation. You know, that was the intuition of, of the literature. And so we can quantify it, you know, so we just assign a number, you know, when you see certain patterns of biographical overlap, if you will, between two officials, um, then you designate uh, some kind of affiliation between them. I mean, it turns out, you know, I was kind of doing very rough network analysis before I even knew what it was. I mean, now it's pretty commonplace. People, you know, do it all the time. And then I, I thought hard about how to uh, code the data in a way that, um, you know, we can keep using the data over and over again. And actually it took me a couple of iterations to get it right. Um, fortunately, sort of a few years later, with the help of my co-author, Chris Adolf, uh, with whom I published the APSR article about cadre promotion, um, we figure out a way to code the biographical data that uh, will be kind of consistent uh, over time and you can add more and more officials uh, to the database and have the database still be relatively robust. Um, and this is what we have now. And I continue to update the database kind of once a year, you know, <laughs> a couple of weeks during the summer where it's like, oh man, there's yet another, you know, few hundred people who entered into the Chinese political elite. Um, so it's has become kind of a hobby of mine, but it also turns out to have some uh, scholarly and maybe even policy relevance. Victor, that was uh, that was a fascinating uh, overview. Um, one question that that came up in my mind uh, as you were talking about that is um, with regards to factional affiliations uh, in China. You know, um, the factions aren't as cut and dry as as a lot of people uh, think they are. And so uh, as you were just talking about, um, you know, looking at, you know, one of and one of the, the ways that, that we all do this is look at uh, previous connections, um, people who have worked together, as you said, or, or were in the same guerrilla base or, or whatever. Um, but that's not always the case, um, obviously. I mean, everyone has worked with people that they would rather never work with again, <laughs> right? And, and, and um, at the same time, we do see, especially in the Xi era, we see that, you know, people that were you know, from, from Shanghai and believed to be in the Shanghai clique um, uh, are gravitating over to him. Some people who, who rose up through the, um, the uh, Communist Youth League that's connected to Hu Jintao are also, you know, some of them are, are seen as his people. And so how do you, I'm just curious, how do you deal with some of the ambiguities and, and make some of these more difficult calls when you see, you know, indications that someone might be connected to, say, you know, a, a, another Chinese leader um, or, you know, indications that people might be connected to various different uh, Chinese leaders and various different factions? 
Uh, yeah, no, this is a very good question. Um, so I think uh, we are helped by two aspects of the political system in China. Uh, one is that um, the factions are hierarchical, right? So that means that uh, you have a patron and then you have a bunch of clients sort of below the patrons. Um, and if, of course, uh, the idea is that as the patron rises through the ranks, the patron is going to uh, try to pull along some of the factional clients also upward. So this provides an opportunity to sort of statistically validate, right? So it's like, okay, we can identify all these officials who used to work with Xi Jinping. Uh, do they have a higher probability of getting promoted? The answer is definitely yes, right? So it's not just my study, a number of other studies. Uh, now even economists are getting into the game. So, you know, there'll be some econo uh, economics papers coming out showing this to be the case. Um, there's still some kind of selection effect, right? So the hierarchical nature, that means that, you know, of course, when Xi Jinping first uh, went to Shanghai, he became a Politburo member. Doesn't mean that all the people he had worked with uh, previously in Fujian and Zhejiang, they will get promotion. At that point, uh, probably not so much, uh, just because obviously Xi Jinping worked with uh, a lot of people that he didn't like. Uh, there definitely are cases in, in Zhejiang that I know of, um, of colleagues who... Uh, resisted uh, kind of Xi Jinping's power. Um, what happened to those people was that uh, when Xi Jinping became secretary general, they were not promoted. And in fact, a few of them ended up in jail. Uh, so if you're looking at uh, just a layer below Xi Jinping, below the Politburo level, let's say in the Central Committee, uh, the relationship between those people getting promoted because Xi Jinping is doing well is very robust. Uh, but if you were to look at uh, the layer below that, uh, the relationship is probably not as robust, right? Because the people who didn't get along as well with Xi Jinping, they were not promoted up to the Central Committee. Uh, and therefore, you know, when you look at that layer, um, it's not necessarily the case that um, those people who worked with Xi Jinping will do very well. But at the level above that, they who people who already benefited from Xi Jinping's uh, patronage early on, they continue to enjoy Xi Jinping's patronage. You know, people like Tai Chi, uh, who enjoyed a whole series of promotions, you know, starting in 2012, actually. Um, so the, the kind of hierarchical nature of factions and of the Chinese uh, hierarchy sort of helped the argument, uh, because when you just look at the top layer and the layer just below that, uh, the relationship is actually quite robust. That's uh, fascinating that, that you were able to um, look, and, and the data is all there, but um, great that you, uh, that, that you had the intuition to look at um, really how these people were promoted under Xi before he got in his current position. And that's, um, I think you hit the nail on the head. That's how, we, uh, that's, that's how we judge whether they belong to his faction or not. Yeah, I think that was really, really helpful and such a fascinating conversation. Um, so now I'd love to just talk about some of the trends from the data. And I know that I really shouldn't have been surprised, but when I was reading through some of your top line observations, wow, there are so few women among China's elite. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to that trend that just literally pops off the page um, when you're looking at your fantastic work. Um, but can you also talk about some of the other key trends that emerged from your research? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I think the, you know, the dismal 
uh, gender balance in the Chinese political elite is is a very understudied topic. Um, and I think I, I will, you know, once I finish the book and, and all this kind of stuff, I, I will uh, dive into it just because no one else will for some reason. Um, basically, uh, in the Central Committee, you know, which is um, the body, you know, it's kind of like Congress, you know, in China, uh, the body in the party that has power um, and is composed of, you know, the 200 or so most powerful officials in China, the share of women is less than 5%. So that's worse than uh, most countries in the world, uh, including, you know, countries where the gender norms are even more restrictive than in China. Um, and so that's puzzling because it's like, well, you know, you go to China, you don't necessarily feel that it's like the most uh, sexist country on earth. Um, it, there, there is a lot of sexism. There, there are a lot of problems with, you know, sexual harassment and, and so on and so forth. But probably not the worst in the world. But if you look at political representation of women, it's among the worst in the world. Uh, so that's very puzzling. Um, so empirically, we know this. Uh, the problem is we don't know why exactly, right? So there are three mechanisms that I can think of. One is, of course, just outright gender discrimination. So uh, at every level of promotion, uh, when uh, someone in the decision-making role is looking at a man and a woman of similar, um, similar credentials, they always pick the man, right? So that is definitely happening, uh, I would argue. Uh, the second thing that could be happening is that um, a women are forced to retire earlier, so uh, that means that their political time horizon is shorter than that of men, and potentially it's even shorter than that of men because they enter into politics uh, later than men. Right. So, in the Chinese political system, typically a lot of cadres start out their lives not as an administrator; they start out as teachers or scientists uh, or SOE managers, and then at some point they get switched over to the government track, maybe women enter into the government track later than men. Um, so that's something, you know, we, I have the data, I can easily establish whether that's the case or not. I just haven't done it. The third mechanism is that maybe women are tracked into specialties that are not very conducive to promotions. Uh, so we do notice just empirically that uh, women are disproportionately represented in um, less powerful bureaucracies like education, healthcare, United Fronts, uh, and some in propaganda, the more uh, powerful bureaucracies obviously uh, include organization, uh, public security, uh, economic management. And so if you're not in these specialties that are more conducive to promotion, then you're not going to be promoted uh, as well as your male colleagues. So uh, we, you know, basically one of the challenges to this is that we, uh, we need to gather data not just at the central and provincial level, we also need data at the prefecture and county level to track basically a cohort of men and women through the entire sweeps of their careers from the low level all the way to the high level to really see what's going on. Uh, but no one has done that yet, uh, but, but I really do want to do it at some point. Yeah, and I, you know, I didn't want to pull us um, away entirely from all of the other trends. Are there other trends that we should also observe from your data? Uh, yeah, sure. So one thing that really popped out at me uh, was that, you know, I even I believe that 
um, the Chinese political elite is filled with people from Tsinghua and, and Peking University and Fudan University, you know, all the, all the top universities of China. But it turns out that's not the case. Um, so if you look at the cohort of central and provincial level leaders from the most recent two party congresses, uh, the 18th and 19th party congress, um, we have roughly a thousand people um, among provincial and central elites from the past 10 years. Uh, out of a thousand people, only 30 people uh, received a degree from Tsinghua University. And then uh, roughly sort of 40 people received degrees from Peking University. So even if you put together all the IVs, uh, so to speak, uh, in China, it's something like 15% of the elite. And if you look at most of the political elite in China, they graduated from uh, universities and colleges you've never heard of, you know, like Hebei Agricultural University, you know, or something like that. Um, and it's, you know, it's puzzling because we're like, well, you know, the Chinese government can appoint anyone they want to be in leadership positions. Uh, why don't they exclusively just appoint the best and brightest in China? China has an exam system. So there is a sense, you know, at least people believe that the people who get into the top universities are the smartest people in their cohorts. Uh, why aren't those people always chosen for leadership position? But the reality is they're not, you know, either because they leave government halfway through or they don't even enter it in the first place. Uh, or because the party is delib deliberately not choosing those people into higher offices. Um, so that's, you know, kind of interesting. Um, the other thing is that uh, I have noticed that uh, whereas during the Hu Jintao era, uh, younger officials were being promoted faster, uh, at least sort of between the provincial level and the central level. Uh, at the 16th and especially 17th Party Congress, we saw a large number of younger officials in their 40s uh, and early 50s getting promoted into the Central Committee. Uh, that has slowed down quite dramatically, uh, especially at the 19th Party Congress. Uh, so overall, sort of the age, the average age of the Central Committee has gotten a little bit older. Uh, so I do wonder whether at the 20th Party Congress, uh, they're going to become even older still. Victor, um, those those are both fascinating um, findings. I uh, actually noted both of them uh, as I was looking through through your data as well. Um, I wanted to touch on both of these actually. Uh, first, you you asked about uh, or sorry, you you mentioned the um, uh, the universities, and that that struck me as well. I also was always of the the opinion that. Uh, Tsinghua was essentially the CCP's feeder university. That's that's where all the uh, top officials would come from. And and obviously, as you just told us, that's that's not the case. Um, what do you think that means? Um, uh, I, we might not know the reason why this is not the case, but do you have hypotheses uh, about why that is true, and and also what this might mean going forward for for China's. Um, governance? Yeah, I mean, one very obvious reason is that uh, people who go to Peking University and Tsinghua, they have a lot of uh, opportunities. They don't necessarily need to work for the Chinese government. They can work for tech companies. They can work for McKinsey, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, despite the more recent, you know, people tell me, it's like, oh, but now everyone wants to work for the Chinese government. I, I just don't see that as the first uh, option for top students in China 
uh, for, for the majority of them, right? So, I mean, some people are very patriotic. You know, you have people here also, you know, if you go to Harvard or Yale, uh, they want to serve in the military, etc. But it's not the the chosen path of the majority of people who go to Harvard and Yale. There's basically a similar logic uh, in China. And so I, I think this kind of uh, exit option is probably um, a strong mechanism for people to even leave the government halfway through, right? So, you know, maybe you start out as very enthusiastic about working for the Chinese government, but then after a couple of years, you realize that, you know, there's some problems, you're not getting promoted fast enough, it's too bureaucratic, too corrupt, whatever it is. Uh, for people uh, who graduate from Tsinghua and Beida, they can still probably exit uh, the Chinese government and still find a pretty decent uh, job uh, somewhere out there, maybe even apply to graduate school, graduate studies overseas uh, in the U.S. or whatever. Uh, but where someone who went to, you know, Hebei University of Agriculture, there really is probably no better option than the Chinese government. So they stick with it. So there is this filtering mechanism where the people who stick with it, uh, maybe the savvy ones who play the cards right, they know what it takes to get a promotion, whether it be through policy accomplishments, you know, doing things that, uh, you know, their superiors would like them to do. Or sometimes, you know, we hear stories about bribing your superiors to, to get a promotion. Uh, whatever it takes, um, the people with fewer exit options are willing to play the game um, to the fullest extent possible in order to get promotions. And so over time, it will be the people who are willing to stick with it. And the people who are very uh, who get increasingly good at playing the game, who get promoted. Um, so of course, then the conclusion of that is like, well, then at at a higher level, then you have a bunch of opportunists, right? And and this is not just my observation. Uh, Xi Jinping himself um, has observed that uh, and has spoken about it on a number of occasions, right? So he's warned against uh, two-faced factions, Liao Mianpai, and opportunists. In the ranks of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, he's thought of a lot of different ways to try to um, net out those people, get rid of them, catch them in the act. Um, so, you know, the rounds and rounds of campaigns, you know, on anti-corruption, on, you know, making sure to promote cadres uh, who are truly dedicated to the cause uh, is precisely attempts at addressing this problem. I don't think this is a fundamentally solvable thing. Um, just because, you know, once you change the rules of the game, the people who are very good at the game can easily shift their behavior to adjust to the new set of rules. Uh, and so, you know, you still have the same problem. Uh, but it is a problem that uh, Xi Jinping himself is very aware of. Well, you know, okay, I, I think the conclusion for me from this conversation is that Xinhua is no HKS or Georgetown School of Foreign Service. <laughs> um, so I have a lot more questions about your data and the trends. Um, but for the sake of time, uh, Michael, I want to go over to you and um, we can dig into some other non-trend related questions. Yeah, um, well, thank, thanks, Olivia. And um, I, I think the – I wanted to go back to what, what you just said about um, sort of younger cadres not being promoted as quickly. Um, in particular, uh, in your data, you mentioned uh, those born after 1962 aren't really moving up uh, like they used to. And um, I, I guess my question is why is this happening? Uh, what implications is it going to have? 
Um, and and actually, maybe if I could add sort of a, a another element to this uh, is looking forward. What will it mean for Xi's leadership uh, beyond 2027? You know, assuming he stays in for another at least another five years, um, is is he? Um, I, I think in your data, in, in your findings, you mentioned that um, you know he he prefers, as we know, to promote his own trusted associates, and they're not there might not be as many um, in the post nineteen sixty two group. So what 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 do you see that as meaning uh, going forward for for Xi and his leadership? Yeah, so this uh, lower tendency to promote younger officials, uh, those who have you know at least sort of ten years of uh, government service uh, ahead of them, um, you know there are two potential explanations of that. One is just that uh, naive explanations that you know Xi Jinping likes to work uh, with people that he knows, and of course the people that he knows are people uh, about his age, maybe a little bit younger, but not a lot younger. Uh, and so when you have this preference, um, over time, as you age, your close associates also will age. Uh, and so over time, the leadership becomes older. Um, so that's one explanation. The more kind of uh, game theoretical, uh, you know, uh, explanation of this is that um, basically, you know, there's some idea that, you know, once you promote someone into the Politburo, they they uh, are in charge of a very important city or important policy area, they can build power from that point onward. Um, and so the longer they're able to have that kind of power, the more power they accumulate. Um, and you really don't want a young, if you yourself would like to be leader for life, you really don't want a young person sitting in a Politburo seat or even a Politburo standing committee seat, accumulating power as you yourself get older and sicker, uh, et cetera. So uh, you would have a preference for older officials who are less able to accumulate power because, of course, you can always just kind of push them into retirement if you want. Um, so for, for a leader who wants to uh, rule for life, maybe they would prefer these older people instead of younger people who can accumulate power. This basically uh, was happening in the late Soviet period. Right. So this was uh, some people may characterize the Brezhnev era uh, and also the, the sort of couple of uh, party secretaries after Brezhnev passed away, Chernenko and Andropov. Um, they were selected because they were old <laughs> and the other old folks on the presidium uh, didn't think that, you know, thought that they could outlast these uh, very old uh, secretary generals. Um, so you could have this uh, aging of the leadership um, over time, you know, especially going into the 21st Party Congress, as you mentioned, um, as Xi Jinping became increasingly afraid of a young Turk who is able to accumulate power um, as he got sicker. So, so this is something that could happen. I mean, the other strategies that he could pursue at the 20th and 21st Party Congress is what Mao did. So what Mao did was to promote a bunch, a bunch of very, very junior officials with no network, elite level network, uh, very little elite politics experience into the highest reaches of power. You know, so people like Yao Wenyuan, Wang Hongwen, uh, they were extremely junior officials. In the case of Wang Hongwen, he wasn't even a government official prior to the Cultural Revolution. A few years later, he became a Politburo Standing Committee member. Um, so you could see that happen also. Um, and in fact, the topic of my book 
which is coming out in the middle of next year, is exactly on this, uh, what Mao did late in his life to stay in power. Look forward to reading that. Sounds yeah, fascinating. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, if, if you could have a, I guess, a crystal ball or even better, you have your data um, and your analysis. So looking forward to the 20th uh, Party Congress, 20th Central Committee, um, you expecting to see a bunch of, of older people or, or, or do you think we might, um, you think that might sort of reverse per your, your second hypothesis? Yeah, so I think this Congress, we are still not going to see some, you know, very, very junior people getting promoted. Uh, I think the preference for the 20th Congress is uh, probably, you know, let's say uh, Han Zheng, you know, has to retire, Li Zhangshu has to retire. Um, I mean, actually, one possibility is, you know, uh, really kind of this uh, Brezhnev era dynamic taking place where even someone like Li Zhangshu, who's over 70, gets to serve for another five-year term. And that will be a very strong signal of, you know, kind of the aging of the leadership. The other, uh, but then other than that, I mean, there are a lot of followers of Xi Jinping who are currently in the Politburo. They were born uh, sort of in the mid to late 50s to, to you know, maybe 1960, um, 61. So you have officials, you know, like Tai Chi and so on and so forth. Uh, and, you know, Li Xi, Chen Xi, they, they, of course, would like their own seat on the Politburo Standing Committees. So the pool of candidates for the Politburo Standing Committee is actually quite large. In fact, they have to fight with each other, uh, jostle a little bit to, to get those seats. Um, it's the pool of people who go into the Politburo from the Central Committee or from even lower level that pool is getting smaller uh, just because, again, you know, Xi Jinping was close to people around his own age. So when you go down 10 years, 15 years, the number of people with those kinds of relationship with Xi Jinping is, is a lot smaller. Uh, so that's where we're going to begin to see some uh, problem. Uh, we'll see how Xi Jinping deals with it. Either I think he, he will, there will be a mix of like promoting uh, people who are close to people he is close to, right? So we're beginning to see some sort of second order promotions, you know, maybe someone who was close to Li Zhangshu, um, you know, getting promoted. Uh, and then the other thing is to pick uh, cadres with a very kind of specialist career, um, especially we're seeing some of these SOE people uh, who were kind of neglected in, in during the late uh, Hu Jintao period. Uh, some of these SOE peoples are coming back uh, as administrators. Um, so we could see some promotion of those people um, into the Central Committee also. Great. You've highlighted some of the, the, the really uh, interesting uh, things to look at going into the, the 20th Party Congress. Um, I think Olivia still has some additional questions uh, about the data, so I'm going to turn it back over to her. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Um, so, Victor, can you highlight some of the unique challenges at play when you collect data on China or the Chinese government's practices? Are you are there any specific challenges that you think differ from like other traditional data collection? Uh, so, actually, most of the time, it's even easier than collecting elite biographical data in other countries. Uh, that is because uh, the party really cares about that, so they. They compile very detailed biographical information on the civilian leaders 
um, you know, sort of uh, there, there was this sort of golden period, I would say, between 2000 and 2015 when very detailed biographical information would be put on Baidu, Baidu Baiku, uh, or you can buy these big biographical dictionaries, uh, which contain very detailed information. I think partly driven by my own work and the works of other people who are working on this, uh, they begin to think to themselves, oh, maybe it's not such a great idea to, to put all this information out there. <laughs> so the information became less detailed over time. But for civilian leaders, it still tends to be pretty good, you know, or you can go on Wayback Machine and reconstruct things pretty easily. Uh, the big problem is when you want to get biographical information on military officers. Um, there, the information has always been kind of spotty. Uh, there, there was also this golden period, you know, maybe between 2000 and 2010, when a lot of biographical information on military officers uh, was available. These days, I mean, it's very, very vague. You know, you can say, oh, you know, Beijing or the Northern Theater just got a new commander. You know, he worked in the Navy for 30 years, <laughs> you know, something like that. And you're like, that's not helpful at all. You know, I want to know exactly what unit he worked in. So, you know, a couple of us are trying to, so there's Dan Mattingly. I don't know if you guys have talked to him. So he's working on uh, Dan and Tyler. Um, they're, they're working on this PLA database uh, and it's very challenging. You know, I, I'm doing, I'm not doing the entire, you know, officer core. I have a paper that just focuses on the past 10 years or so. But even for high level officers in the past 10 years, it uh, turns out uh, Wikipedia is the best source. But then you're like, well, where, where did those people get their information? And I, I really can't tell you, but that's like the best source that I have. <laughs> it's pretty rare that Wikipedia is the best source for anything. So that's very amusing and, and really interesting to hear how like the Chinese government's transparency on that individual level biographical data has shifted over time. You know, I think that the Chinese government, even its structure, can be difficult for Western audiences, particularly those who live in democracies, to understand and, and comprehend. It seems like incredibly complex compared to the U.S. system, but maybe that's just because I'm familiar with the U.S. system and I work in the U.S. system. Um, or perhaps it's just different and really requires mastery and attention to detail in order to, to grasp and understand I'm curious from from your point of view, Victor, what aspects of Chinese politics are less well understood? And of those, what are some aspects where, you know, researchers like Michael and I, um, you know, should be giving more attention and, and doing uh, more studies on these areas? So there is an answer for policymaker. I think the biggest kind of mistake that I see a lot of times is that they don't take seriously the idea that the Chinese government is very, very hierarchical uh, and that these different levels that people are in, they really matter. Uh, and, and you know, what, um, what level of, of official you are, you know, whether it's full ministerial, vice ministerial, director general, um, that all that really, really matters. So, you know, when you have John Kerry going to meet with a retired um, minister, she said, well, this guy used to be a minister, kind of equivalent. That's actually very weak. You know, it's, it's, uh, that person's not going to be able to make any decisions. Nobody will, will really pay attention to, 
what this person is saying. Um, and that, you know, a meeting really should be at least between a state councillor, a uh, full minister, a serving full minister, state councillor, ideally, if not, you know, a Politburo Standing Committee member. Those are the kinds of people we want to meet. And, I, you know, of course, the most important meeting being uh, a meeting with Xi Jinping himself uh, because he has concentrated power so much. Um, and for the Chinese side, they really, really care about this. You know, I, I remember... There was kind of a problem one time uh, when ICBC was setting up a branch in uh, Seattle and the president of ICBC was coming to Seattle. And, you know, of course, in the U.S., it's kind of there's really no difference between like a mayor and the county executive. So originally, Seattle was going to send some King County executive because, you know, that's a very powerful official in that area to greet the president of ICBC, but they just rejected it because, you know, they're like, ICBC is a vice ministerial level organ and you're sending a county level official to greet me. That's unacceptable. <laughs> you know, so things like that is actually really, really important across business, government, uh, etc. In terms of research, I think the latest kind of frontier. So, you know, there's, as you know, there's a huge literature on like, oh, what does it take to get promoted in China? You know, there's you know, dozens and dozens of papers, factional ties, economic performance, a mix of the two, etc. Um, the latest frontier that I'm interested in is, you know, given that we because of this rich literature on promotion, we kind of have a sense of like who has a good chance of getting promoted and who doesn't have a good chance of getting promoted. And given these estimates of their chances of getting promotion, uh, how does it affect the way in which they implement policies? So I have a new paper um, with uh, Aaron Carter at USC and Jung Hyuk Lee at Nanyang Technology University, where we look at, you know, whether it's the people who are likely to get promoted who repress more in China or the people who are less likely to get promoted who uh, use repression more. And surprisingly, we find that it's the people who are less likely to get promoted who use repression more because repression is the easy way out um, and they're less afraid of blowbacks from using physical violence. Um, whereas the people who are about to get promoted is like, I don't want anything to go bad and so I'd rather pay off you know, people if they could be paid off. I don't want any trouble. So uh, I think that's kind of an interesting finding uh, there are also other people working on, you know, how the chance of promotion affect their economic performance also. That's really fascinating. It almost makes me think, you know, because uh, my my area of expertise is on human rights issues. And, um, you know, many of us who study these issues focus a lot on the Uyghurs. And, you know, many of us see it as directed by Xi Jinping. But I never thought about it as, you know, maybe she is actually having some lower ranked people doing the dirty work for him, like Chen Guangguo, for example, who we know is responsible for architecting the system in place, um, you know, that well, it's why we have all the political re-education camps and the surveillance state that has enabled many of these atrocities. And so uh, I just I can't wait to read your study on, um, you know, how promotion affects Chinese policymaking and also how individuals um, think about the actions they will take and how that will reflect on them when promotion is on the line. Um, sounds really fascinating, Victor. Um, so I've got one last question for you. 
how can policymakers make the best use of your data and findings? And, you know, I know that a lot of your work is more in the academic space, but is there any action that you would like to see in response to the findings from your work? No, I mean, I think the purpose of, you know, one of the potential use of my work is just having the data and so people can track. Uh, because once you know the age cohorts, then, you know, you kind of know, like, you know, the people who are going to get promoted, who are going to be Politburo members, comes down to one of a few people. You know, at the end of the day, it is a very pyramidal system. And so, you know, unless Xi Jinping indeed starts promoting, you know, ordinary workers and stuff like that to be Politburo member the way that Mao did, uh, I, I don't think that dynamic is going to take hold until, you know, the 21st Party Congress at the earliest. So for the next few years, the pattern of promotion is relatively predictable. Uh, so if you look at the data, you get the cohort, you know, um, it's pretty easy to derive who worked previously with Xi Jinping you can get a pretty good idea about, you know, what to expect in the future in terms of who's going to be the future leaders of China. Uh, so I think that will hopefully help them make decisions. Um, you know, in terms of kind of more concrete policymaking, I think my other project right now, which tracks the activities of Xi Jinping, is probably a little bit more useful because um, then you can look at, you know, where Xi Jinping is actually spending time on. You know, is he spending a lot of time looking at environmental issues or anti-poverty or whatever, that probably gives you a, a stronger sense of his uh, policy preferences. Um, whereas, you know, for promotion and, and the cadre is really just knowing who the players are. Uh, and I hope that my data is useful on that front. Well, I have no doubt that your data is incredibly useful. And um, I know I've learned a lot from it already. And my goodness, you have given us so much to look forward to from you um, between your books, both already published and those forthcoming, and these studies that you outlined. Um, I'm just really excited um, to, to read them going forward. Thank you so much, Victor, for giving our listeners a better understanding of China's lack of transparency in the, in the political space. So yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. And once again, thank you, Michael, so much for co-hosting with me. I think it was so great to have your insights. Oh, it was it was a pleasure. And and Victor, this was a, a fascinating discussion. I've actually I've learned so much uh, from from this uh, short time that we spent together. So thank you. As always, thank you so much to our listeners for joining us today. For those who are eager to learn more, um, please check out our China Transparency Project website as well as the 2021 China Transparency Report. That's our inaugural report for this project. Um, as always, I will include a link to the website and the report in our show notes as well as um, the fabulous work that that uh, Victor has been doing at UCSD. The website and the report should be uh, useful resources to listeners eager to learn more about about the data-driven research documenting the activities of the CCP. In two weeks, we are going to be bringing you another episode. This will be episode number five from season two, and we are going to be discussing China's economic activities. Finally, just as a friendly reminder, please be sure to subscribe to China Uncovered on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast app. And if you enjoyed this show, please be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We look forward to seeing you next time. China Uncovered is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop.